Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Manly Musings, encapsulated inside this behemoth that we love and care for deeply that we call the Survival Show Podcast. I'm Craig Cottle. I'll be your host today, where we dig into some thoughts that come out of my brain since I'm a man and since I'm musing. That's why we call them Manly Musings. If you hear some noise in the background, that's because I have chosen on purpose and by design to come to the cabin, the cabin I love to go to when I write and muse and stuff like that, sit on the front porch and share up my thoughts today for this podcast. And as I'm sitting here doing it, it is raining like crazy in front of me. Matter of fact, I keep getting misted a little bit here too, but that's okay. I don't mind getting a little bit wet. What I thought I would do, because the rain has inspired me, is go over some thoughts on waterproofing or at least making your gear water resistant. And that includes you. What kind of things can we put on our bodies that are going to help us in rain-related events? Now, sitting here considering this topic, I don't think this is one we'll make two parts out of. It's probably a one-parter, but if it goes long, we'll split it up into a couple parts. We'll see where this goes. When I start talking sometimes... Ah, sometimes it just goes in directions I don't intend it to. But what I thought I could do is just use my book, Ultimate Wilderness Gear. You can see links for it in the description below. Ultimate Wilderness Gear by Craig Cottle. That's my second book. What I did for this book is used, obviously, my decades of experience in the outdoors as well as interviewed people that had hiked the Appalachian Trail, Special Forces, several military folks, actually, people that farm which also includes me, and people that just in general do a lot of stuff outside. And how is it that they handle themselves in a wilderness environment? There's several different things in here that come out as it relates to waterproofing or rainproofing your gear as best you can. And so I'm going to use it as a reference point, share some thoughts. And obviously when I write a book, I write as much as I can to make it usable. But there is so much that I cannot cover in a book because a book just gets too big. So this is definitely going to go into some details that I wouldn't normally have covered in the book. The first thing that I want to dig into is basically your pack setup. We recently here at Nature Reliance School had a level two survival course in which it rained almost, not all the whole weekend, but a good portion of the weekend and actually snowed a little bit too. And there were two or three guys that ended up bringing what are commonly referred to as pack covers. And I just want to caution people, and I caution those guys, and and we work through this as far as a gear study, on utilizing pack covers and thinking they're going to keep the stuff that's in your pack dry because they're not, okay? So if you're not familiar with these things, pack covers are usually a piece of equipment, has some elastic around it, and you basically put it over top of your pack, much like you put a shower cap on top of your head, And in that manner, it protects rain that is falling from getting on your pack. Here's the big thing that, if you're not familiar with them, oftentimes happens. Is that, think about putting on a pack, then putting a shower cap over top of it. Now, any rain that's going to hit against your back, your head, your neck, your arms, and then go down your back, is going to go against the surface of the pack that does not have the pack cover on it. So you don't get total coverage by using only a pack cover. In recent years, I've been very successful in utilizing pack liners. And you can buy pack liners. Uh, They get to be a little bit expensive for my budget. But what I've used for years is just a 55-gallon drum garbage bag. 
talk about this all the time, but man, garbage bags are fantastic things to have in a survival kit. So I will take one and just put it inside of my pack, put my stuff, whatever my stuff is, inside the garbage bag, roll the top down on it, then close up the pack, and then everything inside is dry. What I've been utilizing as of late is an actual dry bag from Snug Pack. I, I would normally just use a garbage bag, but Snug Pack sent me one of these things to try out and to do a review on, so I use it. And the only difference between that and a garbage bag is that it's a little bit hardier, so it's going to last quite a bit longer. And I have found that to be a problem. So when I use garbage bags, I'll use them and and put stuff in and out of them. And, and sometimes I just pull the whole contents out and it makes it easy for me to be able to see the contents. And by utilizing it in that manner, you know, you get holes in it. And so by getting holes in it, it's not waterproof anymore. Now my Snug Pack dry bag, I've been utilizing it for probably a year and a half now, maybe two years. And it's worked exceptionally well. Again, it's a little bit hardier. It's actually got some rubberized outer portion to the 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 liner itself and it's not made to be a pack liner that's just what i use it for it's just a dry bag now they also make dry bags which are completely waterproof bags i've got a backpack like that that i utilize for canoeing that and I, I just don't do much kayaking or canoeing anymore where i have to portage but that's what i used it for i would keep my gear inside that pack and then when it was time to portage, uh, if you're not familiar with canoeing and kayaking, portaging is where you, you basically have to get on land and walk your, your watercraft down the land and get back into the water, whether you're river paddling or even if you're lake hopping or something of that nature. Nevertheless, it makes it easy if you can just put a pack on your back and take it from there. And so that's what I did for a number of years. Now, you can do that. I will say that I have not found without spending a ton of money a backpack that is completely waterproof like that, that, that is just affordable. I just, I mean, they're just too expensive. Now, if you're doing that all the time, you're just like me. I mean, if you do something all the time, like I spend a lot of money on my shoes and my knives because I walk a lot and I'm in the woods. I want my feet to be taken care of. And so I want to make sure that what I have there works. Same thing for you. If you spend a lot of time in the water or if you think you're going to, then getting and spending the money on a good solid backpack is going to be really good for you. A waterproof backpack, that is. So it's up to you and your budget. Line it with a garbage bag or simply line it with a dry bag from any number of different makers. The next thing I wanted to get into was actual rain gear that you wear on your body. Let me go ahead and tell you, I don't care what you get. I don't care if you get a $500 rain jacket that is top of the line, best of the best, you are eventually going to get wet because one of two things is going to happen. Either the garment itself is eventually going to wet out, meaning it's eventually going to get soaked and moisture is going to get to the inside, or it's going to be so hot and not allow any ventilation that you will be soaking wet from sweat. One of those two things is going to happen. It is a fact of life. We trained some really high-speed guys couple years ago and it rained for a solid week while we were there and all these guys that went well, there was a few gals there too but all the guys and gals that were there had literally probably $1,500 rain jacket and pants they all got wet they all got wet you're eventually going to get wet the garments are going to wet out now if you get 
a PVC rubberized jacket, you probably won't get wet from the rain, but you will sweat because your body cannot ventilate in that. So number one, keep that in mind. That's a big thing. Now, as far as what kind of gear do I use as far as rain gear? Now, I, I personally use TruSpec, and I've got a TruSpec pants, and I've got a TruSpec jacket, and I've had very good success with them. And when I say good success, I've done everything from hiking to teaching classes, which is a lot of footwork and going in the woods and all that stuff, wearing backpacks and all that stuff. I've utilized chainsaws while wearing this setup. I've done a lot of stuff in my rain gear. And the true spec stuff is what I find as someone who does not have a lot of money to be about as good and affordable gear that I can purchase. And eventually it too wets out but it takes quite a while for it to wet out there's no doubt about that i can spend a day in the woods walking in rain the whole time and it's going to be wetting out probably that night not before lunch so that's that's pretty good actually in my opinion another type of rain gear and i keep this in my truck as a back backup really is frog togs frog togs is a brand that is really lightweight and when you look at it, if you've never picked it up you'll think man that stuff looks so cheap i have found great success with it if if you get the medium to heavyweight frog talks the lightweight stuff is not worth it's just like putting on uh, pieces of paper that's been sprayed with some sort of plastic it is ridiculously terrible terrible did i say terrible let me say it again it's terrible we had yet another person in a recent class that came with frog togs, the lightweight version. And it seems like it should be the best thing to get. You know, you get the lightest things. You don't have to carry much weight. I get that. But I've yet to see anybody with that level of frog togs that did not completely and totally rip out the crotch. I mean, within no time. Now, that's if you were just standing around doing nothing, maybe if you go to a ball game, football game, and you're out in the stadium and you just want some rain gear on, Maybe, but I'm just telling you, for those of us who actually do stuff out in the woods, the lightweight frog togs is terrible. Now, again, I bring them up because I like the medium weight and the heavy weight. I prefer the medium weight. But I've got a set of frog togs that I just keep in my truck, and I use them all the time on a very regular basis. What you can also get, and I've got a set of this in my old crap it it has hit the fan kit which is the hardiest equipment that i've got probably the most waterproof kit that i've got and it's military uh, mil spec like some of the new stuff meaning the suit probably does weigh cost about 350 bucks but i got it in a yeah i got it i got it another way okay i'll just say it that way i got it another way it's good stuff uh, it's very lightweight it also wets out after a full day in the rain though but the beauty of it is once you hang it up, it dries out rather quickly too. Uh, my true spec is about the same way. And again, it just really depends upon your budget. The other thing that you can do for rain gear is to utilize a poncho. Now ponchos are really useful in that you can put them on, you can throw them over your pack, and you'll still have plenty of room to keep yourself waterproof if you're pretty much just standing in one spot and not moving around a lot. If you have one way that I have done this where I've utilized a poncho is have waterproof bib pants, like bib overalls, but they're waterproof. 
And so the pants actually come up, you know, mid chest, mid back, because if you just have a poncho on and you throw it over top of your pack, pretty much slightly above your waist down is going to get soaking wet. And so it just doesn't provide much coverage for below the waist at all. If you wear bibs underneath of it, then you have the benefit of being able to have that that's going to go with you and be able to take good coverage for your legs. So that works out exceptionally well. The next thing that I wanted to get into was to go ahead and cover the idea of how to use a map in the rain. Now, for those that are familiar with what it is that I do and teach, you may be familiar with my third book, Essential Wilderness Navigation. I'm seriously not here to sell my books, but, but uh, I do have a fair amount of experience in the world of navigation. That's the book that I co-authored with Tracy Trimble. And so there's a, there's a section in there on maps and what have you, but I also have this in Ultimate Wilderness Gear too. It's very useful whenever you go hiking to have a map. I have grown very fond of using Gaia GPS, which is an app that I utilize on my phone. However, you should at least have a backup map of the area in which you plan on traveling anytime you're going to go hiking or in the backcountry. Every time. Every single time. Uh, no ands, ifs, or buts about it. Therefore, if you're going to carry one, you're going to need to do what it takes to make it waterproof. Now, here's what, there's, there's three things that we have done that have worked really well. The first is you can get a map case that's made for the purpose of holding a map. There's some good ones out there, and there's some not so good ones out there. I have an Eberly stock map case cover that works exceptionally well. I have one made by Magpul that is t absolutely terrible. I have another one made by Sea Line that is actually pretty good. But the Magpul one and the Sea Line are rather bulky and big. The other one, not so much at all. The other thing that makes it difficult is when you put a map into a case, can you actually see through the window really well? And that's what happened with the Magpul. The Magpul just, it sucked. It was terrible for that. So I don't utilize it in that manner. Um, the I think they're called the DACA cases, D-A-K-A for Magpul. I did an article for a magazine years ago on them. They're really, really good uh, ways to compartmentalize gear and keep it waterproof, but they, they do not make a good, good map case, in my opinion. What you can utilize that works exceptionally well is a Ziploc bag. And I love simple, and so I love sharing simple things, but a Ziploc bag is a fantastic way to go about just putting your map in a map or in a case and it's staying waterproof. Typically what we use is the large gallon freezer bags because they're big enough to hold an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And that makes a suitable case for carrying a map. And we've utilized that for years. We have our students utilize them in classes and we've had classes where it's rained the whole time. And they just, quite frankly, they just work really well. But here's what I've taken to doing when I have time during pre-planning to do as of late. And I use this more often than anything else. Again, when I have time. And that is to simply cover my map in shipping tape. The reason I've taken to being very pleased with just covering the map with shipping tape is because with a dry erase marker, you can write on it too. Now keep in mind, if you're writing on it and you want to keep those points, obviously they're very easily erased. And so you can do that by accident. So it really is what you want it to be. 
If you are going on a trip and you think you want to mark things and you want to keep it there, then take a Sharpie. If you want things to, you want to draw, like in a, like we might do in a class or we're communicating with another team, we might draw some things on a map and then erase it immediately so that we have a full coverage of the map. Then what we'll do is simply utilize a dry erase marker. And that works exceptionally well. Just be sure that when you do this, two things need to happen. You need to make sure that there's overlap on the outer edge and there's overlap when you put the pieces of tape on the map. If you line the pieces of tape right up next to one another or you just take the edge of the tape just to the edge of the map, then water will soak in there. And so you want to leave a little extra on the outside as well as overlap with the tape itself on the map itself. That way you've got a map that folds up real well and is actually, it's going to last. It's going to last you quite a while. I've got a map that I've been utilizing for over a year for an area where we do a lot of our classwork, and I just leave it in my pack so that I have it with me, and I can utilize it whenever, and I just covered it in shipping tape a year ago, and it's been working perfectly ever since. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was to get into some ideas about fire building. Fire building is such an important, incredible skill and useful thing to be able to do just about anything outdoors as it as it affects your survival and so what i wanted to do was focus some attention on that and my approach to it so hopefully what i'm sharing spurns you on gives you some ideas and you can come up with your own kit and caboodle for yourself there's several steps to fire building but particularly as it relates to building fire in the rain and I want to go over those and share these with you and utilize them as best you can. The first thing I want to point out is that there's three things you need to make a fire. We've talked about this several times, you all, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. You need an oxygen source, you need fuel source, and you need an ignition source. Let's talk about ignition sources first. I'm a big fan of carrying a lighter in my pocket. I'm also a big fan of carrying an extra lighter in my kit, whatever my pack is or whatever's going with me. I typically carry a lighter in a ExoTac uh, fire sleeve. And it's basically a rubberized sleeve that a Bic lighter goes into. So you can check those guys out, ExoTac. If you go to my website, naturereliance.org, I've got a, a listing there for, for them. But I love those things. they really simple product. You can also do the same thing by putting a lighter in a Ziploc bag, no, no doubt about it. You can do it really inexpensively too. Just do something where you have at least one of your lighters at, that is a backup in some sort of waterproof container. Very, very important. They do not work very well once they get wet. You can dry them out. You can take them apart and dry them out and they'll work, but why not just go ahead and keep them in something where they're going to stay dry, right? I mean, just let's just avoid it. Now, the other thing that I like to do is I like to have a ferro-cerium rod as a backup. Ferro-cerium rods have become almost the standard carry for survivalists and bushcrafters and what have you for good reason. Uh, one of the reasons is that they can be soaking wet and you can wipe the moisture and, and wetness off of them and they're going to work exceptionally well. They're going to be just fine if you have a good one. Therefore, I'm a big fan of having that ferro rod with you as well. That way you've got a backup for the backup, if you will. So those are my two biggies. It's simple. It's not much bigger than that that I utilize for fire building as far as an ignition source. Now, fuel source is a different animal. Let's talk about that. 
I'm a big fan of purchasing a product called FastFire. FastFire is the bomb diggity when it comes to fire building. It is a little cube of an ex- what I refer to as an accelerant that you can light with a lighter, you can light with a ferro rod, you can, it can be sopping wet, it can be sitting in the bottom of a bucket of water for a month of Sundays. You can pull it out, break it apart, scrape a ferro rod on it, and it's going to light up. So there you have it. That's my, oh crap, it's really bad situation, which is a ferro rod and fast fire because they both work well even when they're wet. The reason for that is that natural materials that you're going to utilize to build your fire are going to be problematic if it's raining a lot, like it is right now in front of me. If I were to go out and I did this three days ago, built a fire in the rain just because, because I keep up on my skills all the time, then it's difficult to do this. So let's talk about processing materials and how to go about sourcing and processing materials, I should say, in a way that you can set yourself up for success. And the first part, depending upon where you live, there's probably some resinous tree. The more north you are, you'll find birch trees. Uh, The more south you go, you'll find cedars and pines. And you'll find pines throughout North America as well. But but keep in mind that there's one that's going to be more prominent than the other, particularly, again, up north birch and down south, it's the cedars. The reason I bring these two resinous trees up is because... The resin in them is not gasoline flammable, but it's more flammable than your typical hardwood or even medium density wood. So you can hit it with a ferro, hit it with a lighter, and it's going to be more likely to light up and go. The other part of this is pine trees. Pines have a resin in them, and this is what most people try to source and utilize as fatwood. Fatwood is the resin within a pine tree, for example that is also flammable and you'll find it more concentrated near the root ball or the lower branches of a tree and different times of the year different species of trees will have more resin in them moving like in the dead of winter the resin doesn't move as much but in the spring that starts moving quite a bit so you'll find more resin dependent upon the species of the tree even if you don't have any and you scar it resin will immediately start to appear and again that is very species dependent for example here where i'm looking right now i've got a bunch of virginia pine in me i can scrape those things up and they won't produce much resin at all that has that's a product of the moisture in the ground the nutrition in the ground how much rain has been here not okay so with that said you need to get out and practice just practice such a way that you're taking care of the environment Now, with that said, fatwood, if you find a dead pine tree and you get near the root ball, you can cut the roots up sometimes and get really heavily concentrated resin within the root system of a pine tree as well. Now, beyond that, your conifers, all your conifers, your cedars and your pines, your spruces, because they have needles on them throughout the year, forest litter material the stuff that you find near the ground is going to be much drier underneath those trees than it is in others so i'm a big fan of finding some sporadically placed pine trees in a wooded area and then sourcing material under them and if you go into a pure pine forest for example where it's nothing but pines then what you're going to run into is hardly any sunlight gets to the ground and hardly anything gets dried up because of it So you've got to 
you got to pay attention to your ecology and what's there and, and how numerous it is or lack thereof. Also, when I find conifers like that, because they are also resinous, like I mentioned earlier, I can source dry portions of them and dead portions of them and utilize as fire building. So if there's a branch that's broken out of a pine tree and there's a bunch of pine needles on it, then by golly, that's going to be a great source for fire building. Going to be a fantastic use for it. One of the other things that I like to do, and this is the one of the few times where I feel like batoning is about as important as anything that you can do, is trying to get into dry wood, one of the things you'll run into is it's difficult. And most of the moisture that's on a dead branch, for example, is going to be on the outside of that branch. So if you take the time to get to the center of a branch and you can get quickly there by batoning something, then you can scrape off material on the center of the dead branch and you've got dry material. Now, all of this is relative to how much moisture is in the air, how much moisture is on the ground. So that's why I'm a big fan of never sourcing material that lays directly on the ground. So, for example, I'm going to find branches that have, dead branches that have fallen out of a tree and that are then leaning in another tree or hanging on the branches of another. Again, what this offers me is material that has air that's hit it more so than it does on the ground as well as, as, well as more sunlight. And so what you get there is you get a piece of material that's going to be a whole lot drier than what you're going to find on the ground. So that's some basic fundamental stuff. You know, it's another reason that I like to have a poncho because I can just gather that stuff up and keep it under my poncho as I'm collecting more and keep it as dry as possible. Uh, I can also do that if I stuff stuff in a rain jacket. Just keep in mind, I've seen some people that take material and put them in that put it in their hat and then walk around with their hat and say their body heat's going to heat that up and dry it out and when your body heats up and heat is coming off your body it's coming off in the form of moisture so science doesn't back that up very well so i'm not a big fan of that but what i i will do when i can is whenever there's sunlight available so if a rainstorm has come through and i want to dry stuff out and there is sunlight out, then I'll lay materials out in the sunlight so that that helps dry it out. And eventually, when it's dry, it'll actually warm it up. So if I'm starting a fire and the material's already warm, then I'm already somewhere down the path of fire building rather than starting way back there with everything wet. I hope that makes sense. Well, there you have it, you all. Uh, I haven't been here in a while for the Survival Show podcast. I'm glad to be back. Glad that David, uh, he knocked out some really good podcasts while he was out at SHOT Show in Vegas. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else he's got coming up. I listened to one the other day on uh, the uh, coronavirus, and it was just in very interesting. So check that out. Check out David's podcast on that and the other things that he's got coming from SHOT Show. Good stuff. Hope to be back with David sometime in the near future. We'll see how that goes and see what kind of topics we can bring to you. Hey, as always, guys and gals, we cannot do this at all without you uh, supporting us. And so I'm very thankful for all of you who have done that in the many ways that it's available. Let me name off a few. So if you're interested in supporting us, you can help as well. Obviously, you can donate to us right here on Anchor where our podcasts are held. We've got some people that are doing that. It's been very, very appreciative. I've been very appreciative of that. You can obviously check out our sponsors. The big sponsor right now is Sportsman's Guide. They have a whole line of outdoor stuff. So anything and everything you might see in my book, Ultimate Wilderness Gear, you're going to be able to get there. 
as well as, you know, 400 million other things. That that website is crazy how much stuff is on there. I remember as a kid growing up getting that Sportsman's Guide catalog, you know, that little paper one, and just flipping through that and just, you know, you know, just daydreaming about all the different stuff and all the cool stuff in those magazines. So I'm very pleased that Sportsman's Guide is now one of the sponsors of the podcast. So as always, with the Survival Show podcast, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp. Thank you.